In this show, we continue with a theme we're fascinated by at The Evolving Leader, how we build beliefs about ourselves and others. Scott and I are joined by Joe Barnby, a computational neuroscientist who's working to develop better theories of the brain and the behavioral basis of social interaction and how these might be used to explain and treat psychiatric and neurological disorders. His work suggests that soon we will be able to assess people and find optimal ways of creating teams, for example, based on their propensity for social threat. He explains how he builds models of social cognition and how these relate to mindset. We consider the moral implications of this work and the practical ways in which we can use these insights. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Evolving Leader Podcast. I'm Scott Allender. And I'm John Gomes. How are you feeling today, John? I am feeling great. I'm feeling cold. I don't know why, because uh, I've got heating on here, but I'm feeling cold. But I'm also feeling very excited about our guest today, because um, I know we're going to have a great conversation. How are you feeling today, Scott? I am feeling thankful, thinking about all that I have to be grateful for this week and just enjoying some time with the family. So feeling appreciative and also very eager to jump into this conversation today. Today, we're joined by the cognitive neuroscientist, Dr. Joe Barnby, who uses computational imaging and psychopharmacological methods to better understand the brain basis of how we build beliefs about ourselves and others in health and in disorder. He leads the social computation and cognitive representation lab, as well as holding an honorary research position at King's College London. Also, as a musician, he has an interesting side hustle, Sendscapes, which I'm hoping will come to as well. So, Joe, welcome to The Evolving Leader. Pleasure to be here, Scott and John. Thank you very much for having me on. Joe, thank you for joining us. How are you feeling today? I'm feeling great. Um, you know, it's a, it's a rainy London afternoon, which makes it feel very homely for me. Um, and I'm very excited to be here to talk to you both uh, about this work, which I'm obviously very excited about. Um, I'm interested in seeing where our conversation goes. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. Can we can we start with an overview of that work? As we've talked in the past, I think you know you believe that we can build a clear framework for how we represent ourselves and others in the mind, and that will not only improve understanding and treatment for psychiatric disorders, but it'll also provide us all with deeper insights into the social basis of the human brain. Can we? Can you give us a quick tour of how you got to this? Yeah, absolutely. So um, my lab at Royal Holloway, uh, University of London, is is really kind of interested in, I suppose, making more specific the way in which we build beliefs about ourselves and beliefs about others, um, much like uh, Scott introduced earlier, quite succinctly. And so I suppose the story really begins um, in the way in which we try and specify psychological theory. Um, and as something that has really taken hold recently um, I'd say in the last 20 years, 30 years, although it's been going back as far as, I suppose, you know, the 50s and 60s formally is the idea that we can create um, mathematical models or equations um, around sort of cognitive processes or brain processes um, that will allow us to predict with a lot more precision how we act out in the world behaviorally, how we, how we form beliefs, for example, how we navigate spatial environments or how populations of neurons might connect and talk to each other. And these models um, are not perfect, they're not meant to be perfect, but they're meant to be very useful tools to help us think and define very specifically the sort of um, biological or psychological processes that may, may go on. For example, as I said earlier, as we maybe build a map about our environment, you know, what, what kind of processes or algorithms do we use cognitively to start inputting information into some sort of representation of our environment? So this has kind of been really, really popular, um, particularly in spatial navigation, um, but also things like, you know, decision making. So how I might make a model of my environment and how I might make decisions based upon the fact that I can plan using that model of my environment. 
And we can define that again using these kind of mathematical equations. And we, we tend to call this computational modeling. Now, my argument or the, or the argument that um, my lab would make and, and also the collaborators that we work with is that by taking these sort of um, equations that we use to define how we input non-social information, we can also use these kind of specific tools to model how we think about ourselves, how we structure our sort of social values, our beliefs, um, the way that we hold self-esteem around ourselves, how uncertain we are about that, um, but also then how we input information about other people, how we learn about others in our environment. Um, of course, people in our environment are different from just sort of spatial objects or kind of visual objects like a chair. Uh, people react, they have their own beliefs, their own intentions, um, their own social values that we need to respond to and cooperate with. Um, and so my lab's all about understanding the kind of mathematical processes and specific processes that we use to integrate that kind of social information and form these sort of maps of other people. And this is kind of drawing from descriptive psychological theory, sort of really, really good um, psychological work recently and also kind of historically talking about how we maybe model others in kind of our mind, how we kind of represent um for example, the likability of others or the sort of um, social orientation of others. Are they pro-social? Are they selfish? Um, what they look like, the kind of um, body positions. These sorts of facets of other people we kind of store in some sort of conceptual map. And so what we're doing is trying to draw from that descriptive work and apply mathematical computational theory to try and specify these predictive models um, that can demonstrate experimentally or kind of help us predict how those sort of social beliefs may map into actions, how we may be able to predict something like how trusting I will be over time, given the sort of specific maps that I hold about you and I hold about myself, and how we influence each other. Because I think some of these processes are obviously really integral, not just to kind of clinical environments where people find trouble interacting with others or might have um, a sort of breakdown in the way of social information inputs, but also in kind of organizational settings when we're trying to build team cohesion or we're trying to sort of build um, a whole host of different processes where people can work together more effectively. Now, I obviously understand this at a very deep level, but for John's benefit, <laughs> could you uh, hone in on the how these mathematical models are built? Tell, tell us more about that. So there's some really good work um, basically describing things like how... A, a value may become updated over time. So for example, we can build a process of how I might learn about the rewarding value of a stimuli over time. And basically we can define that as saying object X is updated, you know, this object X is the stimuli that I'm interacting with. And over time, I'm going to say that, well, this agent interacts with this object X, they'll learn the probability that it will return a reward. And we can represent that as a sort of simple structure saying that X becomes updated at a certain rate, given a certain outcome from the environment of people, for example, pressing a button on a screen, right? I can press a button on the screen and we can basically say that that button is representative of some sort of learning about the environment, right? You're sampling the environment. Mm -hmm. And so you can kind of represent that as kind of like a, a very simple linear equation, just saying that X or the updating of X over time is equal to the value of X, um, plus the new reward that you have or the difference between what you thought X was worth and what you're finding out about it, plus some sort of learning, how, how quickly you learn about that, how much um, credence you place upon that new set of information to update what your value of the stimuli is. Um, so just to clarify then, in practical terms, that might be something like if you say or do this, you'll get a positive or negative response from another individual. So, you know, exactly. you say something like this, that the other person might nod in agreement or they might question or challenge. And so you're trying to build a model of the likelihood of that happening. Is that what we're talking about here? Exactly. We can almost frame it in sort of um, clinical terms that like we bring in a certain set of assumptions to an interaction or we bring in a certain set of beliefs to an environment. And then over time, we integrate information in that environment to update those assumptions and update those beliefs. Um, and, and really, you know, without getting into the kind of the really close technical details, you can basically place numeric values on all of those things, like the assumptions. You can place some numeric, numeric values about your assumptions. You can place numeric values on how likely someone is to integrate information over time. Um, and then you can have a look at the sort of differences across individuals 
of how strong those assumptions are, how flexible people are in integrating information. Um, and we can apply that to simple conditions, as I said, like in visual environments or learning the map of um, some non-social context, or even something really abstract like meeting people and understanding how trustworthy they are or understanding how likely they are to harm you. These sort of assumptions that we hold previous to the interaction then get updated over time. And we can effectively just place mathematical bounds on that. What are you learning from this about those with a open mindset versus a fixed mindset? Because we know that some people are very you know, open, growth mindset. Up, beliefs will update based on the information that they get. And then some people defend existing beliefs at all costs. What kind of information are you getting gleaning from this this work yeah so i can't particularly speak to the growth mindset framework of things i know that's quite a specific um kind of uh theory or kind of set of approaches but what i can say is that we can understand things about how prior assumptions or the rigidity to which you bring in certain assumptions to an interaction can make it harder to learn about others so um for example in trust games having quite strong assumptions that other people uh, aren't going to share a lot of money with you may make you a lot more sort of selfish earlier on. It may mean that you keep a lot more of that money because you're worried or concerned that this other individual is not going to share their investment with you over time. And so if you don't allow other people's behaviors to sort of influence those assumptions, you're going to be very kind of rigid and very kind of um, specific about your behaviors. In this case, not sharing money, right? In this kind of trust trust idea. If I'm, if I'm trying to inf- have a, play a game with you where I send you some money, you might invest it and then give me some money back, right? Something, something quite common that we all experience or go through if we're trying to set up some sort of business venture. Um, you know, if I have rigid assumptions that people around me aren't really going to give me... Um, some sort of equity from the things that I'm investing that I might choose not to invest early on, even if I have no basis for that information. Applying that sort of, I suppose, quite clinically, a lot of the stuff that I study is also in paranoia or kind of the breakdown of trust between individuals. And we can see that the uh, folks who have experienced a lot of kind of difficulty often in kind of developmental periods where they've being exposed to a lot of um, kind of trauma or abuse or neglect often kind of will develop beliefs that other people are very harmful, which is what you'd expect. But the way that this then um, kind of expresses itself in adulthood is that you tend to get these very rigid assumptions about the harmfulness of complete random people, of, of people who are otherwise you'd have no idea about who they are in these sorts of social games that we give to people. And you see that those who are more paranoid Um, are specifically rigid about their assumptions about how harmful these other people are, but not the other kind of assumptions about the quality of that other individual. So let's say that I'm asking you questions about how harmful this person is given their actions or how selfish they are. We see that things like paranoia and these kind of assumptions um, that are developed through kind of difficulties in development or sometimes kind of genetic differences will lead to these specific rigid and kind of... um, uh, tense assumptions that your partner is particularly trying to be harmful to you rather than any other quality about them. And you notice that over time, even though the, their partner in some of these games may act completely differently, they might act um, quite pro-socially, they might act quite um, you know, equitably, you still don't see these beliefs being updated. And, and we're kind of trying to look at a bit more closely um, how this then influences other aspects of life. Does this make you more anxious during the week? Does this mean that you tend to have your friendship circle close up? Does this mean that, um, you know, the quality of your friendships feel a lot uh, more tenuous or weak? Um, but also underlying that, what is, the, what is the reason for that? You know, what is the reason why these assumptions about others become so rigid? Is it that you, you find it difficult to resolve uncertainty about how you think others are going to be in ambiguous circumstances? Um, we're trying to investigate how this core process may manifest um, over the week or o- over months. Hmm. In, in some of your recent work, you mentioned there's been a shift in how neuroscientists and psychologists look at social cognition, how it operates. Um, how we see and judge one another. Can you take us through some of the underlying ideas in, in this shift of thinking? Sure. Um, I particularly think that uh, the way that we're starting to think about social cognition and the social sort of 
maps about other people is is very much in line actually with with work that's not addressing a lot of social cognition so i think it, it it's kind of a tricky field at the moment because effectively um a lot of the kind of really good work looking at the sort of neural mechanisms with which we learn reward about our environment or even in the brain how we kind of implement um maps and spatial schema about other um kinds of objects so again like spatial navigation we use as an example again because that's quite a good well-founded um set of uh, studies that contribute towards how we input this into the brain a lot of the building blocks with which we use to kind of construct these representations we might also use to kind of construct our social beliefs about other people except that when you start talking about social things as i mentioned before things start becoming a lot more complex and abstract because we need to start thinking not just about um, the, our visual perception of someone, for example, but also what that might mean. How does our vis visual perception of someone link to maybe how we feel about their character or link to their actions or how they might behave towards us? There's a lot more kind of recursive thinking that needs to go on that involves me as well. So if I'm I'm having a look at you, John, and you know I, I decide that actually I, I think you might look quite harmful I'm making a very quick judgment based upon some sort of schema I have of, of you for, for whatever reason that's leading to a much kind of more abstract conceptual set of ideas that link with you. It's not just that um, I see that you're wearing jeans, for example, and I think that, well, that, you know, that's just kind of on face value, nothing to do with anything. It actually might link to a whole bunch of traits that I affiliate with people wearing jeans, right? I might think that people wearing jeans are actually quite pro-social um, or nice people that are approachable and trustworthy. Those sort of more abstract concepts are linked in this kind of conceptual space that we're starting to define and specify a bit more in, in social cognition. And I think before where we had very descriptive ideas about what was interesting and what was um, observable in experimental settings, now we're starting to kind of form really concrete or mathematical theory, which really just gets specifically at how these kind of traits relate to each other in, in, um, in conceptual space or even in the brain, right? How, how these sort of building blocks of cognition that I use to represent my spatial environment might also be used to represent these kind of social others in my environment. Or even how, um, for example, my early experiences may change the way in which I represent social others later on in my life. So what's the hope in this work? What's the great, the great mission in this? Because I completely understand it's, it's, fascinating to me the the ability to measure this right these sort of mathematical constructs and models what do we do with it so this is a this is a really good point i think this is the golden question right because a lot of this stuff is it sounds like really complex and sophisticated but if it can't be applied in some sort of uh, meaningful way then i suppose it just becomes you know a sophisticated useless tool right uh, you know very impressive when you talk about it but otherwise not particularly great to uh, actually predict anything of use. So I think there's a couple of things that I, I see as, as being important, right? So first of all, the way that we traditionally measure actions, feelings, thoughts are usually through these things called kind of psychometrics, right? And you might be familiar with psychometrics mm -hmm. um, that are often used maybe in a organizational setting or even in a clinical setting to try and get some sort of purchase on who this individual is, what kind of person are we dealing with here, right? Or, or um, how skeptical is this person? How politically liberal is this person, right? You can get a whole bunch of very high order traits from individuals based upon uh, their answers to some of these psychometric questions, which are fantastic. But if we want to look at something within individuals, and we want to understand how people actually process information over time, how flexible people are, how um, able people are to go into a new context flexibly update their beliefs over time um, and perhaps sort of input information in this kind of um, dynamic way as opposed to sort of a rigid assumption way. It, it's, it's really difficult to get at that with psychometrics because it tends to deal with between individual changes, right? Um, or mm. between group changes. If we can get at the sort of computational algorithmic process that is going on, then it means that we can actually identify things like belief flexibility, which is very important when you're trying to interact with new individuals. Um, it can really get at the sort of um, within individual momentary assessments about something like trust or something like pro-sociality or something like um, 
how able you are to take on new information to build a model about someone else. That kind of uh, mental clarity or that kind of um, sort of mental uh, uncertainty about with uh, about which you kind of develop beliefs about other things. And I think knowing that can be very important to contribute to this other psychometric domain in terms of adding another dimension of how cognition works in individuals in an organizational setting. In the clinical setting, it's really important in, for us to be able to map these things to um, treatment targets and therapeutic targets. If I know, for example, that a computational paradigm for 20 minutes will tell me something really important about some sort of flexible um, dimension of an individual's belief system or their assumptions, and then I want to test a new therapy or a new drug, I can then have something as a, a sort of marker for within individual cognitive processes that I can use to try and develop um, effective treatments, right? If I know that uh, belief flexibility, for example, is becoming um, a lot more dynamic when I introduce this drug, and that seems to also relate to other clinical outcomes like more friends later on or kind of reduced anxiety during the week, um, that can be a really useful diagnostic tool um, to develop uh, novel therapeutics. Hmm. What are the moral implications? For example, could an AI model of an individual's threat response be a barrier to their advancement? So I think, I mean, much like any AI, right, it's about how um, the person who is using the model to assess something interprets it and, and imbues it with information, right? So, you know, no AI model or no sort of computational model in itself is, uh, is agnostic to its environment, much like we are. And so I think if you start looking at anything that involves some sort of quote-unquote objective assessment of belief flexibility, for example, it can always be used um, for sort of Machiavellian or um, discriminatory purposes. We're trying to not necessarily say that some individuals who have got less flexible beliefs, for example, are uh, somehow worse or, or better off than, than those who have more dynamic beliefs. It's more of a marker of observing the human condition, understanding who might need um, more support, understanding uh, in what contexts people might find social information difficult to integrate, right? And that's not to discriminate. In fact, that's to make things more equitable for people. Mm -hmm. um, and we're not, I, I think morally, it's always dangerous when you're dealing with things that involve, you know, judgments about uh, an individual's character or abilities um, or sort of disposition. But we really, really hope that this is only serving to actually improve outcomes for individuals who might, you know, for example, in, in psychosis, who may struggle um, with quite sort of distressing social contexts, right? Because often individuals with psychosis have had uh, sort of abusive and neglectful situations cast upon them in developmental contexts. So knowing that something may improve the way in which um, uncertainty is reduced, for example, actually might be really helpful and equitable rather than saying, well, let's find people who aren't unwell but have inflexible beliefs and let's kind of remove them for whatever reason. It's not meant to be a discriminating tool, more of a... Um, useful measuring stick, for example, that can identify uh, for whom more support is, is needed and also warranted. Hmm, I like that. Joe, in our, in our previous conversations, you've described a very exciting possibility of being able to analyze or describe the nature of an individual social threat from others, ultimately enabling us to build a better self-knowledge, but also to design healthier teams. Can we talk to us about that a bit? Yeah, I guess this kind of comes back to the, the previous question, really, of, and of how, how can we use this for actual sort of organizational development? And I think in a vacuum alone, I'm not sure if it would be the standalone tool that we could use like these sort of ai models i don't think are very um particularly standalone in and of themselves i think it requires context as i said but understanding something like how clearly we are able to integrate new information may be really useful in in settings where you're exposed to lots of individuals that are new 
probably have very diverse and um, different walks of life and backgrounds and sort of action styles and beliefs. And um, understanding how something like flexibility or, or sort of the quality to which you can build models of other people may make it easier or harder for you to then kind of interact with others in some sort of new team setting might be quite important. Although, again, I think really what we're trying to get at at the moment in the research is just the basics of how much this can actually predict those circumstances in the real world. I think we're getting to a point where we're starting to have this formal theory together so we can start running experiments in more naturalistic settings, like in, in workplace settings, in clinical settings. But I think we're just sort of making baby steps toward that at the moment. But there definitely is potential to have these sort of um, AI models fit into the already uh, sort of diverse ways in which we measure uh, the human condition in, in work contexts that might be able to add a bit more richness and hopefully predictive power over um, for whom group settings may be really useful, for whom um, sort of, you know, learning about new environments may be great or, you know, for assessing uh, individuals that might need more support, right? Mm. So just as a as a way of us thinking about this, when we think about how an individual makes sense of the world, they are triangulating between their physical, emotional um, senses and all the other senses that are generating this map of the world, plus the, the predictive element of it. And that kind of interaction between top-down predictions and bottom-up sensory is constantly creating the sense of, of, of what's happening in a moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I suppose the, the bit that you know is going to freak out most people is how do you start to make sense of that huge amount of complexity because that's a lot of data a lot of different things and to what extent where are we on the journey of being able to to um to capture that complexity where are we are we are we getting a fraction of it are we getting a little bit of it we're getting a lot how you know where, where does that fit in your model so I think there's two two kinds of ways in which we can study things like social interaction, right? And it, and it the, the type of model that you use will inevitably lead to the depth and kind of transparency of what we know is going on. So machine learning models, for example, can take a huge amount of data, for example, eye gaze, psychometric data, um, body posture, movement, and triangulate, for example, how an outcome may be predicted based upon all of these measures together. However, that doesn't really give us a particular kind of transparency as to what's going on in the model. We might have something like, you know, how quickly the model learns or or kind of the nodes, if it's a neural network kind of model, how many kind of layers are implemented to try and reach this outcome with fidelity. But what we're trying to work with is more kind of transparent models where we... um, outline very clearly and specifically the exact processes that go on when we impute new information in our environment, in this case, social environments, which I'm very, very interested in recursively. Now, the only problem is, is that as we start getting more transparent and more specific with the way in which we're building these models, the computational power required to have any accurate estimation goes through the roof, right? So often when we're building these models and we're building the environments that we use when we get people to interact with each other, they're very restricted to very particular actions, right? When we're integrating information all the time, um, we're constantly doing this with absolute ease. We almost seem to do this intuitively. When I meet someone for the first time, it's almost by sort of automatic um, procedure that I will start generating ideas about who they are, what kind of person they are, how I feel about them, what do I want to see them again? All of those sorts of things happen so automatically, it's almost um, effortless with, you know, with the, the degree to which we do this. And so trying to get that amount of computational complexity con- uh, condensed to something like a model that we build is very, very difficult and incredibly expensive um, computing-wise, right? So we try and restrict very, very small processes to very, very particular circumstances. Like I mentioned earlier, sometimes we might build social interactions um, where all it is is involved in trading money between me and you. Over time, I might share some money with you. You might share some money back. There might only be a few options that we can do within that paradigm. 
And then around that, we can place some mathematical bounds and say, well, look, um, you come in with a certain set of assumptions about these very specific actions. Your partner also may have some assumptions about their actions. How do these very small um, sets of possibilities interact with each other over time? And we have, you know, a reasonable depth of computing power to kind of grasp that and to form very basic models, almost like, you know, paper mache models of this otherwise very complex and sort of rich process that is going on. So it's a real trade-off between transparency and efficiency in terms of our computing power and also um, our predictive power and how much it kind of fits into the real world. Again, we're going down the transparency. We, we really want to build models that we can really point to and say, look, these particular facets of this model that I've built are actually changing when we introduce some different social contexts. For example, when we get people to play competitive versus pro-social games, maybe that changes the actual structure of how our beliefs are formed and uh, dynamically evolve over time between two people. As we start developing these further and further, we're going to need to use kind of um, exponentially more kind of computing power really to implement and find new ways of kind of estimating how people interact. Because I think, you know, one part of this is building the model to say this is how people interact. Another part of this is also estimating sort of how the model looks for each individual, which can take a lot of time and also can be very expensive computationally, even though we do this efficiently. So a massive step that we really need to do, I think, in the field is understand how we take so long to build these models and spend so long trying to find efficient outcomes from them, how that translates to the sort of ease with which our minds do it instantaneously, understanding where is that computational power coming from? What is the sort of, you know, what is the ability for our, our minds to sort of integrate all of this um, complex and sort of um, planning social information almost instantaneously when it takes us forever to do that transparently in some sort of specified way in which I can share with um, yourselves to kind of replicate somewhere, right? So trying to bridge that gap between these very specific models that we have and these sort of more naturalistic elements of social interaction is, is, is uh, a tricky, tricky thing. And we're trying to collaborate now with other labs that use more naturalistic paradigms like eye gaze um, or body posture or you know, how much you um, talk during a conversation. If we can have a look at how these very basic computational building blocks like belief flexibility that I talked about earlier relate to these more sort of naturalistic experiences um, during everyday life, during everyday conversation, we might be able to tap into how these sort of very specific um, psychological building blocks contribute to our rich experience in life. That sort of connection is something that we're constantly working towards with baby steps because, you know, it, it takes a long time to kind of figure out the real um, details about what we're trying to study and what the most important questions are and also what the clinical needs are, right? We want to also build things that are actually useful clinically. Um, and in, you know, in psychiatry, which is kind of the main field that I work in, so much of kind of psychiatric experience is to do with difficulties with social relationships, and so understanding how these basic computational building blocks may disrupt these other naturalistic social experiences in relationships may actually help us to explain when it may go wrong and also explain early in life or through genetic or biological changes what exactly are causing this sort of disordered way in which we integrate information. So I think the connection between this kind of transparent theory-driven work that we're trying to accomplish with these very basic computational building blocks or AI model building blocks, and, and these more kind of naturalistic, rich, um, uh, vibrant uh, kind of computational processes that we do naturally all the time, that is a really important uh, connection to make. It's what we're working toward all the time, I think. And it's kind of the next step, trying to integrate more of these models into clinical practice or organizational development to see how, you know, how team outcomes, uh, how cohesiveness of teams may be uh, predicted by how trustworthy or how flexible people may be at the start before they've even been introduced to each other. We can pin some sort of computational building block to some sort of naturalistic social outcome. That would be fascinating and tell us something really important about how these kind of common cognitive processes might kind of um, reflect themselves in our everyday interactions that come so effortlessly to us. In your recent research, what, have you had any aha moments in terms of making progress in those building blocks? 
Yeah, so I think something recently that we put out this year was looking at sort of the computational relationship of similarity to other people. How similar, um, how does similarity between me and you, for example, predict how harmful I think you're going to be later on or how trustworthy you're going to be? So obviously a lot of the work looking at kind of social cohesion and social development um, in cooperative communities is all about developing these sort of general principle frameworks by which everyone stands by so they have some sort of common ground to interact with. We are really interested in really, A, where do you form these beliefs from? Like, where do you generate those sort of common ideas about other people? And B, what happens when you encounter someone that comes from a different set of beliefs from you? And so we use one of these really simplistic social interaction paradigms, uh, once again, with these sort of AI models that we develop to really transparently understand what's going on, to look at maybe some of the computational building blocks involved when we're interacting with someone who's either similar or dissimilar to us. And what we found effectively is that, first of all, we tend to interact with other people. We start interacting with new people, even when they're completely anonymous, with an assumption um, that we, our own beliefs are somehow the same as theirs. We kind of start from a, a position that our own egocentric ideas about the world is probably the same as that individual. And we probably do. I mean, there's, there's really good peripheral work um, looking at this, suggesting that actually this might reduce the sort of general computational power we need to use in everyday life when predicting other people. If we can just predict that they're like us, it actually takes a lot less effort than if we have to really think about a new kind of way of thinking about other people. If you have to build a new model of someone from scratch, it takes a lot more time and effort. So actually, we've shown in this kind of um, experimental work that actually people do tend to start with a position of their own beliefs and social values when trying to learn about others. So that's one facet of it. Another facet is actually that we found that when you're interacting with people who are dissimilar to you, who maybe share social values that are um, sort of on an opposite end of a spectrum for you, it takes a lot longer for you to learn about them, which makes sense. But also something interestingly that we found was that actually you think they're a lot less harmful than you. Um, sorry, you think they're a lot more harmful than they might be if they were more similar to you. So if you have two people that are interacting with each other who are very similar, even if they're both quite competitive individuals, the threshold of thinking that someone is going to be harmful um, is a lot higher than if I was interacting with someone who was very different from my social values. So if when I encounter someone who's um, different from me on a particular dimension, let's say social values, how pro-social or competitive I am, if they're just different from me, regardless of their actions, I'm actually having a lower threshold to think they're going to be more harmful. I'm actually primed to begin to think that they may be more threatening in this kind of vigilant way. We think that this might be some sort of, I mean, this is kind of speculative and we're trying to follow this up, of course, but we think this might be some sort of tapping into some sort of cognitive process by which we start building models of others. When we're forced to sort of start reorganizing um, the values that we have to incorporate someone else's perspective, actually, that might involve some sort of vigilance uh, process going on. Even if later on the person turns out to be quite nice, that initial process may be more cognitively effortful and also may involve a sort of um, higher chance that you're more on guard against them. And so it may be, and again, this is kind of speculative, but we're following it up. It may be that when you're kind of um, matched with someone, even arbitrarily, who seem very similar to you, you may just think they're generally intending, uh, you know, no harm at all, even if uh, their actual actions objectively may be quite harmful. So we think we're tapping into some sort of social bonding mechanism here um, that we want to try and explore on a bit uh, more of a kind of a, a larger level, even when we're thinking about similarity in lots of different ways. Hi, this is Emma Sinclair, business psychologist, occasional co-host and fan of the Evolving Leader podcast. There are now over 100 episodes with an incredible list of guests encompassing a broad range of disciplines, all handpicked by us to help you, our audience, understand and overcome your greatest leadership challenges. We have so much more to come. So wherever you get your podcasts, please subscribe, share, rate and review. Now, let's get back to the conversation. I'm supremely interested in the organizational development application that you mentioned. Um, could you say a little bit more about, you know, what somebody listening right now might might take with them and say, what is the sort of key pieces of insight that I could that could inform my thinking? Um, is, is, does that make sense? Absolutely. Well, 
I think one of the real common things that we find is that the more uncertain you are about someone else's model of something like the more uncertain you are about other people, the more vigilant you're going to be. The way, you know, our work and other, other labs, brilliant work has also shown that the more kind of transparent you can be about your actions and the more kind of obvious you can be about developing a sort of predictive framework about how you think other people are going to behave and respond to you means that you're much more likely to trust others. That sort of complete trans... We see this in, in politics all the time, right? Complete transparency about actions actually improves trust. It, it, it reduces mm -hmm. the idea that you need to make cognitive effort to build models of other people. And it means that we're all then on the same page about what is actually involved in the day-to-day -day interactions that we'll have. Secondly, I think if you're united by some sort of common principles, and I suppose organizations do this all the time with sort of um, manifestos or particular key points that their company or their um, organization should be held by, um, those sort of things develop a sense of community um, and a sense of cohesion that then also fosters trust later on. So I think these two facets that we noticed even on a completely reductionist level when we're looking at two people interacting it seems to be tapping into this general cognitive disposition that we have to um, value transparency value trust value um, a sort of lower uh, need for me to really kind of predict and understand what you're going to do because i kind of already know what you're going to do because the information's out there Hmm. And also having a common set of principles that we all abide by actually may foster um, improved social interaction, improved cohesion. Yeah. Well, can we talk about music for a minute? <laughs> I want to know about I want to know about Sensecapes. Yeah, always. I'm, um, this is kind of a suppose this is a, an art and science project that um, me and um, a few others, Abby Fletcher and Steve Jurgen, um, started developing in uh, around 2016, 2017. And it kind of developed from this uh, hackathon that we were at where we got given a bunch of brain data and we were told to do something interesting with it. And um, I, I used to be a musician before I was doing academic work. Um, obviously not you know, the most successful musician seeing is that you know, I'm back in science now, but I used to really enjoy producing music. That's something that I really, really valued. Um, and I thought you know, I was okay at. And, um, so what we thought we would do, because Abby is an artist as well, we thought we'd turn this brain data into some sort of sonic atmosphere that we could kind of try and communicate the experience of the person who was recorded through a sort of emotional medium like music and fluctuations in music and also art. So also kind of the movement of things like paints and dyes in kind of an abstract way. And so me and Abby decided that this might be really interesting using um, uh kind of classic music production tools. So like, you know, turning brain data into this kind of using the brain data to kind of manipulate those audio waves. Because I mean, when, when you see brain data, effectively, if you look at something called EEG data, which is electroencephalography, you see that actually the output of those um, of that data is effectively just sine waves. It's rhythms of your um, populations of neurons in your in your cortex communicating with each other. And actually what you can do is take those rhythms and you can convert them to a, um, a, a sound wave through some nifty code that uh, Steve Jurgen developed with us. And so once you've got those sound waves, you can break them down and manipulate them in any single way that you want to. And you can pump those sound waves as well through things like cymatic pads, which are basically membranes with speakers underneath them that can vibrate to the same degree as the music that's coming out of them. And we thought, well, if we put these two things together, we can try and tell not just the emotional story of the individuals through the music that we write, but also we can try and use different parts of the brain data at different parts of their, in this case, psychedelic experience to map out different phases of the song and also different movements of the cymatic pad. So we can then take this person's biological experience over time and convert that into some sort of emotional sonic experience in music and some sort of visual um, dynamic experience through the cymatic pad that, uh, that Abby loves to use. And we've done this a few times mm. now. So we've done this with um, LSD data that was kindly given us to us by the uh, Imperial College um, Psychedelic Research Group and magic mushroom data that we took from them, uh, or they kindly gave to us, I should say. Um, we also have done this with uh, meditators that Elena Antonova from King's College uh, gave to us to model um, and then we're also looking to do this with sleep as well. So what it looks like when you're in REM sleep and uh, 
how that kind of emotional journey of sleep may be told through music and and, um, and art. So fascinating. It's uh, if you're interested in this, you can go to SoundCloud and listen to some of your work, which I did yesterday, and it's uh, it's really fantastic. So you know, I mean, it's uh, it's very meditative in its nature. But um, I found myself um, drifting off. I was trying to do some work at the same time as I was listening to it, and I stopped doing the work and I started drifting off so it's very it's very good for that I appreciate that John cheers yeah I mean sorry just to have a plug here I guess you can go to our website as well at um, Mm. www.sendscapes.com to see sort of live shows that we've done as well so we'd like to put this into um, immersive live shows and we've we've done a show at King's College we've done a show in Australia um, and we've been basically putting crowds in the middle of these kind of 30 minutes experiences and having them just sort of sit there. So we cover all the walls in and white fabric. We have projection mapping going on. So we have Abby's visuals projected all around the room. And then we have 360 speakers all around the space. And we have people just sit in the middle. And like you described, John, just have this kind of almost meditative experience where they're sitting there going through that same kind of emotional experience that we're trying to communicate. But knowing that it's made from the raw material of people that have, you know, really been in these sort of altered states of mind. Well, it certainly had an impact on me yesterday, I have to say. I um, I really enjoyed it. Um, so thank you for that. <laughs> it was great to hear, yeah. <laughs> what, what have you got coming um, in, the, in, the, in 2023? What, what's coming up for you in terms of your research? What does that look like? Yeah, so in terms of our research, we're hoping to sort of integrate some of these models as I mentioned to you into workplace environments to understand if these sort of basic computational blocks or basic cognitive blocks that we use to learn about other people can predict something like team cohesion and team trust over time. Um, And perhaps also, you know, kind of um, uh, risk for mental health disorders as well. Because I think obviously um, developing um, uh, mental illness during um, work is something that people are always going to encounter in organizations if you're managing them. So understanding how... um, Something like team cohesion or kind of mental health risk may be predicted by these models is really important to us. But also having a look at um, clinical populations, people who are seeking support because they're, um, you know, feeling uh, quite distressed, maybe through uh, psychosis particularly that I'm interested in. Looking at if we can explain the development of um, things like delusions and hallucinations through kind of alterations in these basic cognitive building blocks that we use to learn about other people. And because hallucinations and delusions tend to be very, very social, um, we think that the models about how we learn about other people rather than other objects may be really, really crucial to understanding when they may become disordered and maybe a bit altered over time and lead to distress. I think we're also looking at um, sort of how uh, different parts of the brain may support these kind of really abstract, computationally intensive functions. So we're working with um, a couple of groups across Australia, US and the UK Um, to understand how this neurological disorder called corpus callosum dysgenesis um, may lead to alterations in cognitive function and particularly also social cognitive function. And just for listeners, corpus callosum dysgenesis is a really kind of common congenital disorder, actually, where you're born without um, a complete absence or almost complete absence of um, the sort of white matter that connects the two halves of your brain. And under, you know, individuals that... um, are diagnosed with this um, tend to show kind of um, difficulties in interpreting the uh, intentions of other people. And so we think um, working together with these kind of patient groups that we have, these neurodiverse groups that we work with across Australia, UK and the US, we can maybe understand a bit more closely then how the corpus callosum generally may support cognitive function. Because in these individuals, it may be that um, a particular domain of cognition is, is is not necessarily impaired, but made slightly harder to grapple with um, as a result of not having this part of the brain. And so that might reflect on actually, what is the point of the corpus callosum in the first place then? What is the point of this really dense white matter tract that we all rely upon for different cognitive tasks? It gives us a, a, a much kind of deeper insight into how that relates to all of us. And a final question for me, um... In all your journeys as a neuroscientist and psychologist, what have you learned about yourself and how mm. how have you put what you've learned to practice in your own development? Yeah, good point. I guess something that I've just learned 
um, throughout doing this work. I mean, I'm personally very sort of quite invested in understanding how we interact with others socially. I probably um, have found myself in a pickle sometimes, not being able to kind of figure out what other people want or understand, or we all kind of get into those situations that sometimes we just get confused and it kind of maybe causes social confusion, right? And something that I've I've really learned through all of this is that it's just, we're all very... Um, we're all very unkind to ourselves, I suppose, when we notice these things happening. I suppose we're all very, uh, we're all quite hard on ourselves often uh, when we find ourselves being stuck with uncertainty around understanding what other people mean or what they want to do, or when we mistake them for for meaning um, for meaning something that later turns out to be completely wrong, right? And that happens to all of us constantly, all the time. Um, and yet I think when people are involved in that personally themselves, they're often uh, siloed and, and kind of feel that they're the only people that this ever happens to. And I think something that really has been highlighted through these, this research is that it's a very basic aspect of being human, mistaking other people constantly, right? Even though we're built to do this very effortlessly in some circumstances, actually most of the time we find it very confusing and it's very messy, right? There's so much stuff we need to think about um, it can be a complete minefield, right? At the best of times, even when we know someone really well, they can always surprise us. And mm. that leads us to needing to sort of rethink how we um, interact with that person maybe. Mm. And we can all encounter this. And I, so I think just honestly being gentler with ourselves and being kinder with ourselves about when this situation arises um, is really important because, uh, you know, it, 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 as I said, it happens to all of us. It's something that seems to be really fundamental. Uh, we mistake it all the time and, um, understanding that and just knowing that I think is actually quite uh, unburdening. I think it actually takes quite a lot of, uh, you know, anxiety off people knowing that this isn't just something that you're stuck with on your own. Yeah. Well, I, th I think that's a great message to end our time on. Uh, Joe, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your insights with us. This has been captivating. Thank you, Joe. Thanks. Thanks very much, Scott. And thanks very much, John, for both of you for having me on. This has been great. Of course. And until next time, remember, the world is evolving. Are you? Are you?